Our sermon text for this morning is Psalm 41. If you're following along as I read, you'll find it on, the, on page 550. Psalm 41, verses 1 through 9. For the director of music, a Psalm of David. Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord Yahweh delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord Yahweh will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord Yahweh will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. I said, O Lord Yahweh, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Whenever one comes to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it abroad. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our great God and Lord of all, in Jesus' name, I ask you to speak through our brother Uri as he comes to declare your word. On this, the worst of days and the best of days. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to first of all thank my friend Richard for joining us this morning and for lending his talents to help us in our worship this morning. This most solemn, as uh, Mark said, this most solemn of days for disciples, followers of Jesus. Richard has been more than a colleague at the WSO. He's been a trusted and faithful friend over the many years that we've worked together. I've also had the privilege of spending time with Richard out at his cottage on an island in Lake of the Woods. One of the things that he says about being out in the pristine wilderness is that it makes you feel like you're in Genesis. You know that feeling, don't you? When you get outside of the city and you breathe the fresh air, when you hear the birds calling, you can really see the stars, you find a kind of purity out in the woods, a different kind of reality. But it's more than that, as my friend reminds me, there's this question from the Bible that never fails to come to his mind when he's out there at the lake. And that question is the question, where are you? Now, in our conversations, he usually remembers that as a question between God and Abraham. 
And that's understandable because God called Abraham from a place of not knowing him to revealing himself to him. But I hope you'll forgive me, Richard, for gently and affectionately correcting you in public. <laughs> Since when I've gone home and looked for it in the Bible, I've found it's actually the question that God calls out to Adam and Eve after they've been tempted by the serpent into doubting that God is as good as his word. After they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, after they have spoiled the pristine environment that God had created for them, in the midst of their corruption, God calls out to them, where are you? It's a question of distance. And it's the question that looms over us, looms over everything that we do as human beings. This distance from God hangs over our whole existence. We all feel it. That sense of alienation. Before we know anything else, we know that we have lost something important. It's the most poignant of our longings. Now, when we're older, we think it, it must be just that we lost the security of our mother's womb. But that's not it. It's that we know that we have lost him. Many people think that it happened sometime over the last few hundred years. But no, it happened a long, long before that. Adam, where are you? Where are you, Eve? Now, according to the Bible, that was the second question, at least the second question that humans ever heard. And it was God who said it, God seeking people who were hiding from him for the first time. Well, you might be wondering, if that was the second question, what was the first question? Well, according to the Bible, the first question came from the serpent's mouth. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And because Adam and Eve acted on that injection of doubt, even though Eve corrected the serpent's twisting of God's words, all of a sudden they found they could no longer believe this thing that now seemed so arbitrary, so ridiculous even. So they ate. And after they ate, they felt ashamed, so they hid. God came looking for them with his, where are you? But he knew that that was only the first of what would now be an endless stream of questions he had to ask. Questions designed to uncover not their physical location, but where they were in relation to him. The questions had to be asked so that the humans realized that there was no place to hide, not from him. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? 
What is this that you have done? And then, some years later, why are you angry, Cain? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Where is your brother, Abel? And only then do we have the first recorded human question. Am I my brother's keeper? It's fitting that this question is like the serpent's question, not a sincere question. It is like the serpent's question designed to obscure the truth, to twist away, to hide from God's piercing gaze. God asks, where is your brother? But both of them already know the terrible answer. God's not looking for Abel with this question. He's forcing Cain to admit the awful truth of what he's done. God is homing in on where Cain is in relation to himself. And in vain, Cain tries to put him off the scent. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And that's also the question lurking behind Psalm 41, which Pastor Mark just read for us. So if you don't still have a copy of the Bible open, I'd invite you to turn there once again. Psalm 41 is on page 550 in the Pew Bible in front of you. The first part of the psalm teaches us exactly how God would answer Cain's question if he were asking it sincerely. Am I my brother's keeper? Psalm 41 answers, blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him. The Lord will protect him. He will bless him and not surrender him to his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. Am I my brother's keeper? O Cain, what do you think? But now here's the twist. After the ideal, after the blessed is he who part of the psalm, we hear a prayer, a prayer that describes reality, a disappointing reality that's all too familiar to all of us. Yes, David seems to be saying, blessed is he who cares about the poor, who has regard for the weak, as the NIV says. I believe that. I've always taken it to heart. But God, look where I am. You promised to restore me, but I'm on my deathbed. You told me you'd keep my enemies at bay, but now that I'm stuck and can't get away, just look who's coming to pay me a visit. Even those who I thought were loyal are now showing their true colors. It turns out they were only my friends when they figured they could get something out of me. Such a vulnerable, such a personal, you could even say such a bitter prayer. And yet, as the dedication in the psalm tells us, it was written for the director of music. In other words, it's a psalm that declares right up front that it's meant to be shared. It is to be sung publicly. A 
apparently David thought it had broad application, that these words would be helpful to many, expressing a feeling that he obviously regarded as common, as a way of worshiping God, in fact. This is kind of a surprise, isn't it? Disappointment with God is the best, the deepest, the most common argument that you'll find against faith. But here we find it in the Bible itself, in the very words of Holy Scripture. So let's stay here for a second. As I say, deep-seated disappointment is the strongest objection to faith. It's not modern, it's not sophisticated, it's not scientific, but it's at the root of all criticisms of faith that claim to be. What I mean is that modern people may think that they're very sophisticated, may think that they have constructed scientific arguments, ironclad arguments that make it sound like belief in the God of the Bible is not only unthinkable, but even irresponsible. But those arguments largely boil down to a simple dissatisfaction with God. That a lot of the time he doesn't seem fair. That he doesn't answer prayers. He doesn't keep his promises in a straightforward and predictable way. That he doesn't do what we think he should do when and how we like. That how he operates in reality doesn't match our pious and immature fantasies. According to this logic, being good just doesn't work. Trust in God is for the weak and the feeble-minded. At the very least, creating a world that is more to your liking will mean that you are going to be doing most of the heavy lifting. But it's also worth noting that this objection to living by faith does not only restrain the hearts and compel the actions of people who consider themselves skeptics. It's nearly as common to find the same sort of disappointment with God amongst believers. We usually don't admit it, though. We'll dress up obviously false rhetoric like God helps those who help themselves with human-sized goals that sound lofty enough to inspire yet are sensible enough to be achievable. Benchmarks that we're pretty sure we can attain by means of teamwork or technology. Or we manipulate emotions so that we get the impression that God is moving among us, but is really a humbug, a great and powerful Oz manufactured by little people cowering behind shiny curtains. So then we can keep claiming to believe and trust in God, but we're not really all that upset when he doesn't actually show up, since we don't really need his help to engineer a win. Of course, unlike us, and to David's great credit, he's not interested in lying to himself. Nor does his faith in God ever waver, What does he do when he's faced with severe disappointment? Look at verse 4. He doesn't understand his predicament, but still, he prays. 
Not only does he pray, he prays boldly. He asks for mercy. He asks for healing. And though he doesn't list his sins one by one, maybe because he doesn't even know the precise nature of them all, he readily confesses that he is a sinner. He assumes that on some level they must have something to do with his current situation. So for David, expressing sincere disappointment with God is a way of rephrasing, of repurposing God's own question to Adam and posing it back to him. God, where are you? When we ask it of him in the same spirit that he asks it of us, not as a deflection, not as a way of trying to hide our sin from him, but as a desperate cry, a sounding out of his position in relation to us, it is worship. That might not sit right. It might sound counterintuitive, but I can claim it confidently because it is practically the same question that Jesus asked of God as he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's in the figure of Jesus hanging on the cross that God resolves the mystery of our alienation. The feeling of loss that we all have, his seeming distance, his apparent failure to live up to his promises. On the cross, Jesus, the man who is also God, embodies the problem we've been talking about, but also brings about its solution. Here is the perfect man, the perfect Adam. No one in history can claim to have obeyed God more completely, to have done more for the weak and the poor. And yet, we hear from his own lips that far from protecting him, far from preserving him as our psalm promises, God abandons him. My God, my God, where are you? But at the very moment of abandonment, that moment of cosmic separation, that moment of sacrifice when God, the Son, the perfect spotless Lamb, takes on and takes away the sin of the world, he at long last answers his own question. At long last he finds his people. At long last his people can find him. At long last, they know their relative positions. The search has proven successful. God and humanity united once again and forever in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're a skeptic, there's hope. There is hope. The God of the Bible, the God of reality, 
may not be who you thought he was when you were younger and found you were disappointed by him. He was operating on a far grander scale than you could have imagined. He always was. He keeps his promises in his way and in his time. My challenge to you is to start allowing yourself once again to ask the question, where are you? But in hope, in humility, in expectation of locating God's position relative to you. He will not fail to find you. If you're a believer who has given in to disappointment and despair, who through bitter experience no longer expects God to do much of anything, my challenge to you is to allow your expectations to be awakened once again. But also to allow God to be God. To be bigger than anything you previously dared to imagine or to hope for. Give up your puny notions of what is possible. Let go of the fantasies that you're clutching to your heart, dreams that are bound to let you down, a life free of pain, a life that makes sense, a life that you control. And begin to allow yourself to join in his work, his wild work, his untamable masterpiece, which is nothing less than the reconcile, the reconciling of the entire universe to the praise of his glory, as Paul puts it in the book of Ephesians, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And knowing this, expect that his work is being realized on a much broader canvas, an infinitely broader canvas than the tiny corner that you can take in at any moment. Let your prayers to the God of reality be bolder, be more faithful, be more demanding, be more extravagant, and less reasonable, less understandable to other human minds. Utterly unachievable without God's help. So that when you catch a glimpse of them being answered, you will truly be blessed, not in some pious fantasy, but in the reality that compasses suffering and redeems it. Let's pray together. O oh Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, we stand in awe of this rescue, barely daring to believe that it is true. 
though it's familiar. We're so used to asking the question, where are you, that many of us have given up ever hearing an answer from you. Thank you that you have already answered the question for us. We have only to step into what you've already accomplished for us. Help us to join your work, your wild work, your untamable plan to reconcile the entire universe to yourself. Just a small thing. And to you, it is. But to you, it is the purpose of our existence. Help us to walk into it with expectation and excitement and joy at what you may do through us and in us. In the name of your Son, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and your relation and your position in relation to us for showing where you are and where we are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.